0: Hey, everybody. This is Mark Taylor.
1: And this is Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNF Podcast. Each week, we speak with BNEF analysts about the interesting research they're working on. And this week, we are joined by Meredith Annex, who is Bloomberg NEF's Head of Heating and Cooling Research.
0: Okay. Wait, why, why do we have a Head of Heating and Cooling Research?
1: It's actually a new thing for us, so huh. it was a gap. That we needed to fill. And the reason it was a gap is that heating and cooling are actually a huge part of total energy demand. Buildings alone account for 21% of global energy consumption. She's going to speak with us today regarding two pieces of research her team has written the greening of heat and decarbonizing US heat getting started. These have a lot to do with gas and electricity and what options we might have in the future to pivot between the two for heating and cooling.
0: Okay, cool. So both of these reports are available at BNF.com and bnfgo Go on the Bloomberg Terminal uh, for our subscribers. If you're interested in becoming a BNF client, reach out to us at sales.bnf at bloomberg.net. We write about a wide range of topics, including clean energy, advanced transport, digital industry, innovative materials, and commodities. Please note that Bloomberg NEF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and you can hear a full disclaimer at the end of the the show.
1: Meredith, thank you for joining us. Hi, Dana. Hi, Mark. Thanks very much for having me. So today we're going to talk about heat because that's what you spend pretty much all of your time focused on, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much.
0: That's new for you, right?
1: It is. Yeah.
2: I've been at BNF for a number of years now, but we only started a team looking at heating and cooling at the end of last year. Because... So for us, it was really about finishing the puzzle pieces around decarbonization. Mm. If we look around the circled high chart of emissions, we understand power at BNF very well. We're understanding transport better and better every single year. Our EV team is great. Our autonomous driving team is great. What we haven't had as good of a picture of or solid a picture of is buildings and industry. Mm-hmm. And that's where my team really comes in. Because when it comes to building an industrial demand, a lot of that has to do with heating and cooling.
1: There is a path to decarbonization. You outline this, actually, in a lot of the research that you do, and it seems to break down into just three areas. You've got electrification, district heating, and green gas. Can you explain to us what each of those three things actually are? Yeah.
2: So when it comes to decarbonizing buildings, what you're looking at mostly is space heating and hot water and hot water provisions for, like, your showers Mm -hmm. or that sort of thing, and you need it to be kept at 60 degrees Celsius at least so that it doesn't grow bacteria. So you do need heat to be put into that wherever you are in the world. Now, right now, traditionally, we're using fossil fuels to provide that heat. Very often around the world, it's coal, gas, or oil being provided through a boiler or a furnace that is providing this heat to your home. When it comes to low carbon heating solutions, we do see three pathways, as you said, Dana. So one option is electrification. Um, which is the use of heat pumps or direct electric heating in order to heat your home.
1: What is a heat pump?
2: It's a great question. I think a lot of people think that they don't know what a heat pump is, but you actually do. It's just an air conditioner running in reverse. So if you imagine...
0: Got that, Dana.
1: I I don't have an air conditioner. (laughs) I don't either.
2: (laughs) Right. So so let me explain it a little bit more. Um, As long as you are above absolute zero in the world, which we always will be, and if we aren't, we've got other problems, Uh, you've got latent energy in the ambient environment around you. So even at zero degrees Celsius, there's still energy in the air outside. Even then in the ground outside, there's going to be energy. What a heat pump does is it sends a refrigerant out there and takes in some of that energy by boiling the refrigerant. An electric compressor then compresses the refrigerant to put even more energy in the system, and all of that gets released as heat into your home. Mm-hmm. So you are using – you're basically transferring heat from the ambient environment into your house using a very small amount of purchased energy in the form of electricity. And this means that you have a huge amount of efficiency from it. So on average in Europe, we would expect that for one kilowatt hour of purchased electricity, a heat pump would produce 3.5 kilowatt hours of useful heat in your home. Hmm. And just as a comparison, uh, do either of you guys have gas boilers in your home right now?
1: Yes. I do, and it's broken at the moment. I've got a repairman coming today. Anyway.
2: (laughs) So um, in comparison, those gas boilers that you have for every one kilowatt hour of gas that they're consuming, they're producing around 0.92 kilowatt hours of useful heat. Mm. So you're just, you have under 100% efficiency for a gas boiler because that's how physics works. But for a heat pump, because they take advantage of this latent energy in the ambient environment, you can have well over 100%. In terms of the is that quote unquote than efficiency. Yeah. So district heating, what you're doing is you're moving hot water around a series of pipes. So you've created heat in a centralized location or semi-centralized location. Usually it's a CHP plant. Uh-huh. It could be like waste heat from a facility or it could be a heat pump. But you're heating hot water that's going around pipes, and then you'd have a heat transfer unit in your home that takes some amount of that heat into your home. Oh, okay. And then leaves a slightly colder fluid in the pipe afterwards. Okay.
1: And then there's green gas. Now, what is what, what comprises the green gas category?
2: Yeah. So we're using green gas as a catch-all term at BNEF because there's no real industry standard for what it means. Usually, it consists of two or three types of things. Uh, biogas, so biomethane, uh, hydrogen, and synthetic natural gas, which would be basically methane molecules, but they're created through a process like electrolysis.
1: So of these three, electrification, district heating, and green gas, which is got the rosiest future ahead of it?
2: I think it depends on where you are, actually. Uh, it's a very diverse field that you're in. If you're lucky enough to have historic legacy district heating, that's really fortunate when it comes to decarbonization because it's relatively straightforward.
0: So again, if you're Iceland.
2: Yeah, or or Denmark is Denmark. usually the yeah. example that yeah. you would hear. Okay. Um District heating is source agnostic Uh as long as it's operating within a certain temperature range. Um, And that means that you can replace that CHP plant with low carbon sources in a pretty straightforward manner. You have to do some digitalization. You have to do some some optimization of the facility, but you can do it. Everywhere else, it's kind of an open field about whether it's going to be green gas or electrification. And it's kind of the battle that we're seeing in most countries, regardless of whether they've got a strong gas grid or not today.
0: So the rosy future kind of depends on the drive for it.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And at the moment, policy is going to be a big determining factor about where we see the growth opportunities today.
1: The story in the U.S. is a little bit different than the story in Europe. Looking specifically at the States, you identify the fact that in the South, it might be more appealing to actually have some of these um, electrification solutions. Why? Why yeah. is a
2: great question. So the South has a couple things working in its favor. The biggest one is mild weather. If you're imagining that heat pump again, and it's taking, let's say it's an air source heat pump. So it is, that means that it's sourcing its heat from the ambient air. Mm -hmm. outside. What matters for its effectiveness at moving heat from the outside into your home is the temperature differential between your home and the outside. So if I'm trying to move the water going around your radiators or the Mm -hmm. air coming out of your air ducts, depending on what type of system you've got in your house, is going to be somewhere around 35 to 75 degrees Celsius. And that temperature differential, so getting the ambient air outside up to that temperature is what the heat pump has to do. And that determines how much electricity work you have to put into the system. So if you're starting from a point like in a cold climate where it can easily be below zero or negative five degrees Celsius, that's a bigger temperature that you have to work over and As we all probably know from just life experiences, temperature doesn't like to move from a low spot to a high spot. It likes to move the other way. So you're working against nature in that sense. You know, you're adding work to the system through the electricity purchase.
1: So the electrical demand is what's driving the cost competitiveness then in these different geographies.
2: Half of it. So this is half the story. So half the story is that because the winters are more mild and more days are more mild in the south – you're always going to have a higher efficiency for your system because the system has to work less hard. The other half of the story, though, has to do with cooling, which is the other half of my team's focus.
1: And Hence that's the reverse air conditioner.
2: Exactly. Or the reverse heat pump, as you will in this context. So a heat pump can work both ways. You need to add a fan maybe, but you know it can work both ways. As long as that's the case, you basically get two for the price of one in terms of your upfront cost. And that's a huge deal. Because heat pumps have a very high upfront cost when you compare them to a traditional gas system, whether that's a furnace in the U.S. or a boiler in Europe. Uh, they're usually out of the money in terms of upfront cost, and that puts off a lot of potential buyers. When you then add in the price of an air conditioning system, now in the southern U.S., you're looking at not just the cost of a gas furnace, you're also looking at a gas furnace and as some sort of central air conditioning system. Instead of getting both of those separate systems, you could just get a heat pump. And all of a sudden, heat pumps start to look really cost effective, both in upfront cost and operational costs.
0: You know, just in in personal interest, I've just just been hearing about the northern U.S., and specifically in New York, uh, the company Dandelion, the offshoot from what Google X. So I have two questions about that. And that could help us dip into the players in in this space as well. And into retrofit versus new build. But what I've heard from about them is, well, first, can you clarify, is that district heating or heat pumps? No,
2: it's heat pumps. It's heat pumps, okay. And they're specifically ground source heat pumps. Uh-huh. So they're looking, instead of using the air as their ambient environment, they're using ground, so the soil.
0: Okay. I was a bit dubious about it when I first heard of their venture, but I, it sounds like I got it wrong. Uh, it sounds like they're kind of killing it. What is interesting to me, what, I, what I've heard, is basically that they're putting these into new developments, right? So new communities, new build homes and using it as a marketing tool to bring people to these new communities, right? So they'll say, hey, you know, come to this new community where your heating and cooling costs will basically be zero, and people are moving to these these new homes. So is that what we're going to be seeing in this space more and more? What's the future there?
2: Well, so we are actually working on a case study right now that's looking specifically at Dandelion's business model.
0: I didn't know that beforehand, folks.
2: I know, that was a perfect plug. <laughs> okay. So... uh um, an analyst on my team, Emma Coker, is uh-huh. currently working on that report. Should be out in a couple of weeks. Very exciting to have the chance to plug it in here. Uh, and Dandelion is really cool. Uh, my understanding is that they do retrofits as well as new okay. build. Although, that's, honestly,
0: this is just yeah. what I hear. Literally, totally. What I hear, yeah.
2: The thing that so there's a couple pieces to unpack there, specifically within Dandelion. the thing that we find really innovative about Dandelion, aside from the way that they're working to modularize the way that they do ground source heat pumps is um, the financing model that they provide. Uh. So they're providing private sector loans that you pay off over 20 years in order to reduce the upfront cost of a ground source heat pump. And that can remove that barrier because these systems can be $8,000 equivalent in Europe, a ground source heat pump, you're talking closer to $15,000, $16,000 in Europe. These are a huge cost to take. So if you can remove the upfront cost, then you're great. The biggest thing, though, that you're pointing on is about why a new building would be going for them. And actually, this Mm -hmm. is something that we're seeing across the board, not just with Dandelion. Uh, Across the board, heat pump sales are stronger, probably, and often driven by new builds. So um, in the southern U.S., you could have 60%, 75%, depending on where you are in terms of census region, of new build homes that are opting for heat pumps instead of any other heating system at all. And the U.S. on average, 40% of new builds have a heat pump instead of any other type
1: of heating system at all. This is not a particularly new business model because we've actually seen this in the solar industry where I'm hearing comparable upfront costs. And my question really is, are the payback periods in terms of equal or roughly the same?
2: So that's something we're also working on for the summer. You Mm. guys are doing a great job pitching my pipeline. (laughs) Um, (laughs) In terms of how it works compared to solar, they're both very similar in terms of a high upfront cost that you earn back over their operational lifespan. The way that tends to work in solar is that you're reducing your electricity bill. The way that that works with heat pump is that you're using less fuel total than you would have with your other system. And so what you have to look at is the ratio between the electricity price and the gas price and the efficiency of each of your heating systems. So It's a bit more complicated of a calculation to do than for solar, which makes it a little bit harder, I think, for the average homeowner. But with a new build home, you're almost always gonna be having a lower operating cost. Um, And that's usually what a new build developer is worried about. They're less worried about the upfront cost of the system. They're more worried about the lifespan of this building and how operational costs are going to be affecting the future tenants or future buyers over time because having a home that's new with lower energy bills is more attractive from a buyer's perspective.
1: Well, I guess the difference is you're going to need a heating and cooling system in a home regardless. Regardless. But the solar panels seem to be fairly optional because you've got the grid connection. Exactly.
2: And on that, actually, let me ask you guys a question. Do you know off the top of your head what the pence per kilowatt hour is, because we're (laughs) in the UK, for the electricity that you buy versus the gas that you buy?
0: I'm, I got to go. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, and this is the thing most people don't, right? Yeah, so no. most people aren't thinking about this. But depending on where you are, that ratio could be really high or really low. Oh. In the UK, actually, the ratio is really off-putting for a heat pump usually because you're probably paying, I think the average in the UK is about 16 pence per kilowatt hour on electricity compared to 8 pence per kilowatt hour on your gas. Mm. So you would need a very efficient heat pump to make that worth your while in terms of operating costs.
0: Can we go back to policy, though? Mm-hmm. In, in that vein, is there going to be a time where I'm going to be forced to retrofit my my house, you know, regardless? Yeah. Am I in trouble in the UK or anywhere else?
2: Maybe in the UK more than anywhere else. Oh, hey. uh, OK. So no, this is a really like this, you, you hit on a really serious policy point that that governments are thinking about today. Like, honestly, this is a core part of the net zero report in the UK is trying sure. to decide how we're going to incentivize this transition historically, the way that incentives for heat pumps have worked has been very similar to solar. You get a subsidy for the upfront cost or you get a subsidized tariff for the electricity consumed by that system, which would be the equivalent maybe of an export tariff for the solar. And that's the way that you would earn it back. So it's all financial mechanisms that are driving these markets forward right now. What the Committee of Climate Change report is saying is basically, is that the best way to go? Because There's a couple problems with that. First of all, in the UK, it hasn't actually led to a dramatic rise in the uptake Mm -hmm. of low carbon heating. But also, there's a big concern around uh, governments about the social costs here, because as you get to poorer and poorer communities, a larger portion of their income is being taken up by energy bills. So should you be offering financial incentives? Should you be offering standards and then paying for those through kind of a national tax Mm -hmm. program? That's kind of the ongoing question. So, how do you remove the financial barriers and burden from the individual? And what would you, you
0: get a bigger chunk of the change if you went for commercial first?
2: No, because commercial there's fewer commercial buildings, and commercial buildings use heat differently. Oh, okay, right? right. So, you have more space heating in commercial buildings, but or space cooling, depending um, on on the type of building that you're in. For instance, in Bloomberg, we've uh-huh. got a lot of servers in our building. So really all that we have to do is cool the building because we get passive heat provided by most of our servers. Oh, right. Okay. Um, So it gets a lot more complicated, but you don't have hot water, which around the world tends to be the biggest source um, overall. Because if you think about milder climates, especially in developing countries, you don't really need space heating. You do need hot water. Mm -hmm. That's not an issue in commercial buildings. So commercial buildings also have a challenge because generally speaking, retrofits are more complicated with a low-carbon no, okay. system. Okay. And and that has to do with basically the output temperature of the system and how fast you can eat your, heat your building and how much of a what's called a U-loss, a heat loss, coming out of the building is like a load of factors that affect this. But if you're going to have to retrofit your building in order to have a low-carbon heating system, that's harder to do for an office space than it is for a home. So you need to do both. You need to address both. But there's probably different ways that you get to both. The U.K. is often looking at using... Tenancy agreements and mortgage agreements is a way to do this. So commercial buildings in the UK, it's either a current policy or soon to be Mm -hmm. that if your building has a energy performance rating, EPC code below an F, you're not going to really be able to resell that Mm -hmm. on a commercial building. What they're talking about is looking at the same thing with tenancy laws. So in a private building, potentially saying that, okay, you can't rent out this building if it's below you know, D or whatever, on the EPC rating, which is the energy efficiency ratings here in Europe. And so that could be a way that you do it through standards, which kind of takes the financial question out of the hands of the individual buyer. But you do have to find a way to fund that.
1: From a decarbonization standpoint, let's say you've got this finite pot of money and you want to spend it on solar or uh, on your heat, renovating your heat system. Which one is going to give you more bang for your buck in terms of decarbonization?
2: It depends on the carbon content of your electricity grid, because right now, if your electricity grid is mostly coal, then, you know, coal's got the highest carbon intensity of any of these and electrifying your heating systems doing no good because you're now switching to coal instead of gas, essentially, to like really generalize. But if you're in a region, and this is why we put electrification as one of the pathways to decarbonization, if you're looking at a country where the grid is decarbonized, then your electricity isn't the issue. The issue is your heating at that point.
0: Can we go back to the players for a minute? Is this a startup play like Dandelion, or are we going to see bigger names, you know, familiar names come into the space?
2: Right now, there's kind of like the big five heat pump companies. There's always a big five. There's always it? a big five. Yeah. Um, I'm not entirely clear on who's in the list of the big five, but you always hear the big five. <laughs> okay. uh, but it's, it's going to be your typical, like, Mitsubishi Electric, uh-huh. Daikin. The big makers of air conditioners are the big players in heat pumps.
0: Are they also the installers? Do they have installing installation?
2: Installers tend to be very much like solar, where it is going to be mom and pop vans doing the installation. A lot of these companies will run training programs because installation is complicated with a heat pump. uh, And so you need to make sure that someone's installing it properly. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Um, but, But it'll still usually be a mom and pop shop that's doing the installation. That said, there are smaller players in this space as well, like the dandelions of the world who are doing innovation. Right now there's a lot a lack of transparency around the heat pump space and that allows room for a lot of players, a lot of distributed players, a lot of different types of designs, business models that may or may not be fully competitive with each other because people just have a lack of information to do that comparison.
0: So there's space for new entrants.
2: Yeah, and consolidation. What we're expecting is that as these sectors continue to grow, and we've been seeing some pretty remarkable growth rates for, for heat pumps in recent years compared to where they were before, there's still a very small portion of total homes, uh-huh. but their growth rates in terms of annual sales of heat pumps have been rising in Europe and the U.S. As that continues, you would expect to see the space continue to evolve with new players entering, players consolidating, all of the normal stuff that happens when you start to increasingly commoditize a relatively
1: mm-hmm.
2: non-transparent sector.
1: What sorts of innovations would help accelerate this and, and specifically from a cost competitiveness standpoint?
2: Mm. So the big conversation right now within heat pumps is Around variable motors, uh, I, I think I probably have the term slightly wrong, but it, it's essentially that the idea is that you can operate your heat pump and your refrigerant flow at multiple speeds. And the reason that you may want to do this is because you don't have to have the heat pump operating at 100% all the time. And you can imagine that this can improve the performance of the heat pump dramatically, both in terms of heating your home, but also in terms of like what it can provide in terms of flexibility to the grid. So, if you had a demand response portfolio with a lot of heat pumps and all of them are on variable speed, instead of turning them off and on, you can just ramp them up and down and use that to smooth your grid, for instance. So that's a big, exciting conversation right now. Uh, the other one isn't really about cost. It's more about market size, and that's noise reduction. So heat pumps have a motor. They have a fan. They tend to be a bit noisy. Uh, they are always designed to be compliant with noise regulations. but
0: look how noisy. Like annoy-me noisy? Uh, Keep them outside the house noisy?
2: You would. We're talking about split systems right now. Okay. Um, For the people on listening to this podcast who know what that is, that means that you've got an outside piece as well as an inside okay. piece. And those are generally what you're talking about when you've got a centralized heat pump. Okay. Otherwise, you're talking about a package system, which is kind of like a window-mountain uh, right. air conditioner, right? right? Um, and those ones, they, they will be about as noisy as a refrigerator, I believe. If you okay. take a look at our... Barriers to heat pump adoption in Europe, note, then we actually show where heat pumps fall on that scale. Now, that means where they're, you know, that's the standard operating of them, but they're designed to hit a 0.42 decibel because that's the noise regulations require of them. So it adds costs. So there's a lot of investigation being done about what you can do to reduce noise in order to have heat pumps in more concentrated locations, such as multifamily housing units with multiple heat pumps, or just to, you know, have them become more popular, Mm -hmm. um, because that is something that a lot of people worry about.
0: Making heat pumps cool. Exactly. Right.
1: So I'm actually doing a bunch of home retrofits at the moment to try and make my house more carbon friendly. And... I want to know how am I going to find out about these companies? How, how how does one stumble across them or intentionally come across them? And and what are the business models that they have for going to market?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So, and this is something that that is a big topic right now within heat pumps is education because oftentimes if you just go to your installer, they may or may not know about a heat pump or be familiar with them. They may not be trained to, in how to install them because mm-hmm. uh, it's a mom and pop shop, and most of their revenues probably come from gas boilers and replacements. So what the heat pump manufacturers do is they work with mainly two types of companies. Well, first of all, they can just sell them directly themselves. They can also work with a real estate developer. So trying to find real estate partners that they can work with. And this comes back to your question earlier, Mark, with how the operating costs work. So they'll work with the building designer to incorporate heat pumps right at the start. Um, So you're seeing more and more conversations between those. And the last is to go with your utility or with a bulk supplier. And both of those are almost distribution venues for these companies. So they can advert basically be the preferred partner for Eon or for EDF or or for whoever. Uh, and that's how you can find out about the heat pump.
1: So that benefits utilities as well.
2: It does, yes. For utilities, it can be looked at as a way to increase their relationships with their customers bring in new customers, have longer customer relationships, have an extra revenue stream coming in from their customers if it gets combined with a smart home or a flexibility solution. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting
1: conversations happening on that front, too. What I find most interesting about this is all these existing massive incumbent players that are going to benefit from this because we talk a lot at the company about potential disruption. but. I'm seeing this as more of an opportunity for utilities and Mm. potentially you're even saying water companies.
2: Yeah. And I think the question is really around how the gas companies deal with it, probably. Mm -hmm. Because some of them are moving more and more, well, oil and gas companies, you know, they're increasingly the same thing. But some of them are moving more into electricity. Some of them are looking into heat pumps. And if they, they do that, then this can be a benefit for them, too. Or it could almost be a challenge because... We would expect that a Europe with more electrified heat would also have reduced gas demand. Even if there's more gas demand in the power sector than there is today, it would still be less overall gas demand. And so how do you deal with that? Do you then kind of push for green gas, hydrogen as your solution? Do you look for an extremely efficient gas provision of heat, such as an absorption heat pump, which uses gas burning as the heat source? What do you do is basically the open question.
0: Meredith, thanks for joining us.
2: No problem. Thanks for having me, Mark and Dana. Anytime.
1: Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute nor should it be construed as investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed.